uh, as I began to get closer and closer to the time of uh, this week's message, I realized that the couple things that I was thinking about were going to take a lot more emotional and mental energy than I had this week. And so I came up with something else, and I thought, well, you know, this is something a little closer to home for me right now. This is something I need to hear myself. It'll be easier for me to invest myself in all the studying and, and uh, meditation and prayer that it takes this week. So I changed directions. And uh, I, I, I did it with some trepidation because I thought, you know, we've preached on this theme before, this theme of pain, this theme of life's problems. We've, we've done this, you know, and we've done it a lot. I feel like I've done it a lot. And I began to think, well, why is that? I think it's because we need it. I think it's because, you know, I look around this room and I see, you know, we all have challenges, we all have pain, we all have hurts in our lives. But I think we need it, and I think we need these reminders. And so that's what I'm doing here this morning. I'm reminding myself. I'm preaching to myself as much as the rest of you. If you look at the sermon title, you probably think Jim Garrett should be up here. You know, I love those phrases that I call Garrettism. You know, most of you have heard them. They're the things that we hear from Jim Garrett in the course of our everyday conversation. Occasionally we hear them from the pulpit or in prayer. And one of those is that we're in it together. You've heard Jim say that, right? We're in it together. I love that one. It speaks so much of what we are as a church. This one is often spoken during difficult times. It includes the idea that we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. It includes the idea that we hold one another up in Christ through the challenges of life. We support one another in practical ways. We support one another in prayer. We're in it together. That's very encouraging. Well, another encouraging Garrettism is the one that I've stolen for my sermon title this morning. Most of you have probably at one time or another heard this phrase from Jim, God's not asleep. Of course, just like the phrase we're in it together, it's a very biblical idea. We see it uh, in many places in Scripture, here's just one from Psalm 121, verses 3 and 4. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. But this idea that God's not asleep goes well beyond the idea that God never really closes his eyes to sleep like we do, nor does he need to. You know, God didn't rest on the seventh day of creation because he was tired and needed to take a break. He did it to establish a pattern for us because we do need rest. Now, God doesn't need rest because he's God. We do need rest because we're not God. The reason the idea that the phrase God is not asleep is encouraging to us uh, really has very little to do with the idea of rest. It has everything to do with the greatness of God and his overarching care for his children. We serve a big God a mighty God, an all-powerful God, a God who knows all and sees all and understands all, a God who created everything we see, even if he's chosen to use his creatures to use what he's created to build something from it, like the building that we're sitting in this morning or the microphone that's amplifying my voice here. Because God's not asleep, we can rest assured that there is a plan and there is a purpose that's always being worked out for our good and for his glory. Because God's not asleep, we can have absolute confidence that even in the midst of problems that life inevitably brings to us, God's in control. God's at work. He has a plan. 
God's not asleep. This morning we're going to spend a little time in three separate passages that help us work out this idea a little bit more fully. Ironically, one passage actually shows God the Son asleep. All three, though, show the vast difference between what we know and understand and what our Creator God knows and understands. So let's start with the New Testament passage. This is found in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. Let me read that to you. On that day when evening had come, he, speaking of Jesus, said to them, speaking of his disciples, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And Jesus said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now we just read in Psalms that God never sleeps. Yet here is God the Son sound asleep. And not just sound asleep, but sleeping during a major crisis, a major life-threatening crisis. Now I don't want to get sidetracked this morning by exploring how God the Father never sleeps, but God the Son, God the flesh, slept during his time on earth. And not only did he sleep, but he needed sleep, just like we do. There's a lot we could say about how Jesus set aside or emptied himself of his rights as God to become fully human while remaining fully God. But that's a sidetrack. That's not the point that we want to get at today. What we want to note is the disciples' reaction to this crisis. This is where we can truly begin to understand and this is where we can truly begin to relate because this is where many of us are today. Like so many of us here, there are problems or pain in our lives. I can look around this room and I can look at so many of you and see you, my church family, and begin to call, recall this problem or that problem or that hurt or that challenge or this pain. I can look around and see most of you. I know what is going on in your lives. The disciples were with Jesus, and they were afraid in that boat. They were afraid of that boat sinking. They were afraid of dying. Yet Jesus didn't seem too worried, did he? He was asleep in the boat during a powerful storm. You know, my wife Barb has Jesus' gift of sleeping. Window-rattling thunderstorms don't wake her either. Me, I'm awake with the disciples. But the point here is that their fear... In their fear, they awakened Jesus. Now, that's good. They woke him up. And you'd think they did that because they thought Jesus could do something about their problem. After all, the disciples had already witnessed Jesus performing miracles. Even if at this point they didn't fully understand who Jesus was, they knew he was more than just an ordinary man. Yet after waking him, presumably because they thought he could do something helpful, They added this question, don't you care that we are perishing? Isn't that interesting? What comes next gives us even more insight into our human nature. Of course, what we see is Jesus just spoke. All he did is speak, and the wind calmed down, and the waves were calmed. Now think about this. 
The disciples supposedly woke the sleeping Savior because they thought he could help them. We go to prayer to God through Christ, right, because we think he can help us. But when God the Son did help the disciples by exercising his omnipotence and total control over nature, what was the disciples' response? They said, way to go, Jesus. We knew you'd come through for us. Thanks so much for saving our lives. Sure, glad we woke you up. No, that's not what they said. That wasn't their reaction at all. Mark tells us they were filled with great fear. Luke's account tells us they were afraid and they marveled. Mark recalls their response like this, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Even the wind and the sea obey him. Now that can be a faith-building statement. That had to be a faith-building experience for them. And I believe that's what Jesus wanted for his disciples. After all, he chided them by saying, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? We tend to think of the post-resurrection disciples when we think of all the apostles and their wonderful examples as heroes of the faith. But you know what? The disciples are so much like us. They are so real. They are so humid. They are so flawed. They are so weak. I think that's important for us to see sometimes. On the one hand, they did wake Jesus when they needed him. Yet they accused him of not even caring about their welfare. And they were surprised when he displayed his godness. We forget about God's greatness, especially in the midst of any sort of pain. Our prayer is often, I believe, help my unbelief. That's often our prayer, isn't it? We forget the old children's song. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing that he cannot do. The rivers are his. The mountains are his. The skies are his handiwork, too. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing that he cannot do. The disciples weren't the first ones to forget this, and they won't be the last. My guess is some of us in this room have forgotten that from time to time. Well, you might think, gee, they had Jesus there with them, so they had an advantage that we don't. Or did they? Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And he said, I'm with you always. But they did have another advantage in this situation. Jesus' response to their petition was immediate. It happened right there. And his response is just what they wanted, right? They wanted to escape the storm with their lives, and they did, thanks to Jesus' intervention. But we have to sometimes live with the reality that while God will sometimes maybe even often in his grace and mercy, choose to bring immediate or eventual relief to us. Sometimes his plan is longer than our plan. And what's more, sometimes we don't see what God is doing. God feels no need to explain himself to us, and that's hard for us. I think of two Old Testament passages where God says to an individual, or a group of people, essentially this. He says, I'm God, and you're not. So trust me. I'm God, and you're not. Trust me. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing more than you know what I'm doing. Trust me. One extended passage where we see this message is from the book of Job. Now, here's a man whose name is synonymous with suffering. But the interesting thing about Job is that he never knew the great cosmic drama that was unfolding that he was a part of God never saw fit to explain himself 
or Job's suffering to Job. After losing all his possessions, after losing his children, after suffering physically, it got so bad that Job wished he had never been born. Then we see where Job endured his friends trying to figure out where he went wrong, trying to explain the reasons for Job's suffering. This goes on for more than 30 chapters, and Job prays for relief, he makes statements of faith in God, and he goes back and forth between faith statements and despair. Honestly, isn't that where most of us are when we experience any kind of pain, hurt, suffering in our lives? It doesn't have to be the kinds of things Job suffered, though some of us had suffered similar things. But we're almost always fighting for hope and battling despair at the very same time, hanging on tight to the grace of God when we hurt. So how did God answer Job at the end of all this? Well, it's way too long to read here this morning, but let's look at just a few verses to illustrate. God's extended response to Job starts in chapter 38. It's interesting that even as Jesus responded to his disciples' cry by calming the storm, God chose to speak to Job out of a whirlwind. God can calm a wind just as easily as he can create one to speak from. Let's read the first 12 verses of chapter 38 of the book of Job. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its base, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning? since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place. Well, God's talking about creation here, isn't he? He starts by saying, essentially, Job, you don't know anything compared to me. I'm a maker of worlds. Job had a lot of questions. We have a lot of questions sometimes. But answering Job's questions was not the issue here for God. God used Job's ignorance about how creation works to show him how really little he understood about God's moral order. If Job did not understand the workings of God's physical creation, how could he possibly understand God's mind and character? There is no standard or criterion higher than God himself by which to judge. God himself is the standard. Our only option is to submit to his authority and rest in his care. So God asked Job where he was when the earth was formed. It almost sounds a little sarcastic, doesn't it? The way God is speaking to Job here. He asked Job if he understands how the earth was formed, how things came to be as they are. Things such as why the oceans are in their specific boundaries and why the sun rises and sets each day as it does. Now, this isn't a science lesson, folks. God says he commanded the morning and caused the sun to know or cause the dawn to know its place. So Job, now at this point, more intimately 
and experientially aware of God than he'd ever been before really has no choice but to humbly submit. And his response in that submission is interesting. It's repentance. It's repentance. I didn't know what I was talking about, is basically what Job says. While Job had rightly defended himself against his friend's accusations of sin and had defined his circumstances as being governed by God, he had drawn conclusions about what his affliction meant that did not account sufficiently for what was hidden in the knowledge and purposes of God. You know, sometimes God doesn't necessarily want us to figure out what he's doing. He just wants us to trust him. Yes, there may be times when God uses life's hardships to teach us and shape us and mold us, and he wants us to understand that. But trusting him also means we trust him to show us that purpose when that's what needs to happen. Sometimes perhaps God just wants us to believe that Father knows best, just like the old TV show. God knows best. Father, God the Father knows best. We see that too in a passage written to the people of Israel in Isaiah chapter 40. As you're turning there to Isaiah chapter 40, let me give you a quick background. The prophet Isaiah was writing here to a people in exile. Israel and Judah were living under basically an evil empire. They'd been driven from their homelands, and they were virtually powerless to do anything at all on their own. You know, without the perspective that the Word of God can provide for us, it's easy for us to become hopeless, to despair of ever seeing anything positive, to think we're powerless. You know, the world can be a hopeless place. Sometimes we say, where's God? That's what we think. That's what we say. Where's God? Where is he in all this stuff? What we must remember is something that we're discovering here together this morning. As we read from Isaiah chapter 40 and compare it to the things that we've already seen in Job and in the uh, account of the uh, calming the storm. What this chapter reveals, Isaiah chapter 40, among many other things, is that our God is a God of the big picture. Let's look at a few key sections. We first read from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. This chapter is about comfort. Now listen to this word picture of God and his work, starting in verse 12. And see if you hear echoes of what we just read in the book of Job. And as we read this, let this word sink into your spirit, okay? Verse 12 of Isaiah 40. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens. You know what that means? That means thumb to little finger, right? That's what, that's what it's saying. Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. Now, isn't that interesting too? Drop in the bucket. Here's an example of a phrase that's become part of our vernacular, but it originates in Scripture. It goes on. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. And then in verse 17, before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? 
Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. There's so much here. We could probably spend actually several weeks on this. But for the purpose of this morning's message, I want to take you through several key points here. God, as he did with Job, in this case through Isaiah, God points out the things that he's made out of nothing, like the whole universe, like the billions and trillions of stars he created and knows by name. Isn't that an awesome thought? The billions of stars that exist, he knows them each by name. He's so big that the nations are as nothing, nothing but dust on the scales in comparison to him. And now today, that would include nations like those led by Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-il or nations led by Islamic radicals. To God, those nations and even our nation are smaller than dust. But after all these things, after all these things telling us how big God is, Isaiah doesn't just leave us there. And that's a good thing. After all, just the fact that God is so big and powerful and we're like grasshoppers to him, well, that fact alone doesn't give us comfort. In fact, it could add to our fears, couldn't it? You can step on grasshoppers, right? But Isaiah doesn't stop there. He talks of little us, you and me, God's people, those who hope in the Lord or those who wait on the Lord. What does God say? He says he will strengthen us. He will comfort us. Even though he knows each of the billions of stars by name, and I think we could agree that's a pretty big task, he also knows each one of us by name. He doesn't just know our names. He knows us intimately. He knows our thoughts. He knows the number of hairs on our head, Scripture tells us. He's in control of the universe, a very big God, but at the same time, he cares for little us. If nations are like dust on the scales, then we're not really much in the grand picture of things. Yet, he loves us. He cares for us. He strengthens us. He helps us. He sustains us as did the disciples in the boat with Jesus, and as did Job, the people of Israel to whom 
Isaiah is writing here had clearly underestimated the God that they serve. It's apparent from verse 27 that they had also questioned God. Verse 27, let me read that again. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Really what they're saying there, they were thinking or saying, God can't see what's going on in my life, and he doesn't seem to care. You hear echoes of that, the disciples in the boat with Jesus. The people had underestimated God, both his power and his love. And this chapter reminds them why they should not underestimate God. But ultimately, the key is this. God's not asleep. God's not asleep. The reverse of that is true. God is at work, always. Always, God is at work, 24-7, 365. The truths in Isaiah 40 were designed to build confidence in our Creator God. And as a result of that confidence, to bring comfort. They needed comfort because they were separated from their homeland, because they were suffering. They didn't see how that suffering, the horrible things they had endured and were even still enduring, would ever end. We're there sometimes too, don't we? Aren't we? We need comfort sometimes, too. We need comfort. We need encouragement. We read about the power of God versus how puny we are in comparison to the Creator. That's why Isaiah writes in comparisons and questions, who has measured the waters in the hollows of his hand, who's held the dust of the earth in a basket. Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way? Anybody here done any of those things? Anyone here think they can advise God on how things ought to be done? Again, the same kinds of questions God asked of Job. Who's God's advisor? Gee, God, I think you should do such and such with this situation in my life. It would really work out a whole lot better, and I'd be a lot happier. But Isaiah says, who has understood the mind of the Lord? Who taught the Lord the right way? The exiles had to be challenged in their thinking and to be persuaded of the truth of the divine promises. And sometimes, if we're honest, in the midst of these things, we too must be challenged in our thinking, or at least reminded of the truth. We have to be persuaded of the truth of God's promises. But the bottom line of God's answers to their questions, the bottom line of the answers to our questions is the same. Trust me. Trust me. Hope in me. Wait on me. God reminds us there is a big picture. There is a plan. It's a big picture he sees now and he has always seen. In verse 21, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? Of course we haven't, but he has. And then in verse 28, do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. So here we see God was there from the beginning in verse 21. Also in verse 21, since the earth was founded, we see him called in verse 28, the everlasting God. And then also in verse 28, the creator of the ends of the earth. Think of it this way. Have any of you parents ever responded to a question of your kids with this statement? I've been around longer than you. I've been around longer than you. Now, as many analogies go, this one breaks down just a little bit because we parents learn. And because we've been around longer, we know more than our kids because we've been around longer than they have. But nobody taught God. But it gives you an idea of what God is after here. 
He's been around since before there was time. He can hold the oceans in the hollow of his hand. He can hold majestic mountains on scales. He weighs islands not like dust, but fine dust. He can sit on the throne above the horizon of the world, and we look like grasshoppers to him. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy, like a tent. Now, how much more foolish is it for me, someone who's lived 57 years instead of all eternity, to tell the God who's existed since before there was time, who holds the earth as easily as I hold this little squishy ball earth, glad he doesn't use it for exercise, huh? Huh? How foolish is it for me to tell that God how to do anything? To do anything. Verse 18 has a central idea in this chapter. To whom would you liken God? Who are we going to compare him to? It's clear from the context that all of our analogies are inadequate. They only help us catch just a little bit of a glimpse of our creator God. So as one commentary noted, the problem lies in assuming that we have comprehended. We have gauged or somehow fully understood the mind and spirit of God so that because of that, we're in a position to make recommendations to him or to correct him in his thinking and his acting. But to counter this argument, the argument or this complaint, the argument here looks not so much to the nature of humanity, but to God. First of all, we recognize that our God, Yahweh, is a God of the long view. He's a God of the long view. In verse 28, he's the everlasting God. His strategies point to the ages, not necessarily to the moment. Israel complained that God doesn't watch, doesn't care. Well, our time is different than God's time, our sense of that. Think about this. We want, we seem to need more immediate satisfaction. But God is content to wait. We get tired of waiting. He doesn't grow weary as we do. He doesn't give up as we do. He moves toward his plans and purposes through days, weeks, months, years, decades, centuries, millennia. Finally, God recognizes our frailty. Verse 30 says, even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. Anyone here ever grow tired or weary of the battle? Yet if we hope in, if we wait on the Lord, on his plan, on his timing, and we must do that in trust, in confidence that he knows best, what does the word tell us? He will renew our strength. This is the most familiar verse in this chapter, verse 31. But those who hope or wait in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Now the word for hope here is translated wait in many versions, but even wait encompasses the whole idea of expectant waiting. And isn't that what hope really is? Waiting with expectation. One Bible study uh, defines it this way, and I like this, savoring God's promise by faith until the time of fulfillment. Savoring God's promise by faith until the time of fulfillment. We cannot judge God completely by our own perceptions and our experience. The perspective of God's greatness in size and in time requires waiting on and hoping for. God's time is not our time. 
God's moment is not our moment. But those who can learn to wait on God's time and hope in God's way will renew their strength. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. So again, God is a God of the long view. He's not discouraged when we get discouraged. He's not weak when we're weak. And we're usually weak. He cares for his own who trust him and wait for him. Let's determine to remember that God's not asleep. And let's let that memory help us also remember he will renew our strength. What we see in the story of Jesus calming the storm is a scriptural incidence, I think, of both and. On the one hand, we see that the disciples waking Jesus shows great confidence in them, yet at the same time, we see Jesus chiding them for their lack of faith. I think it's both and. They woke Jesus because they thought maybe he could do something, but they forgot how big God is. When confronted with this reality that Jesus could, with only the words of his mouth, calm the storm, they were afraid and amazed all at the same time. I think this illustrates how we are. We believe that Jesus can do something about our problems, about our storms in life. But where we display the same weakness as the disciples do is in the littleness of our faith. And so we pray, we believe, Lord, help our unbelief. In other words, help us believe more. More so, we realize from very real life experience that, hey, God doesn't always calm the storm. He doesn't always calm the storm. And even if he does eventually, it never seems to happen fast enough for us. And we don't understand it. After all, Jesus did it for the disciples. Why not for us? And that's where Job struggled. That's where the people of Israel struggled. That's where we can get stuck. Jesus spoke peace to the storm. It was a peace that passes understanding. That's why they marveled. They couldn't understand how Jesus made peace in the midst of that storm. So though sometimes the storms of life continue to swirl around us, yet God still promises his peace to those who wait for and trust in him, even in the midst of the storms. And this is where we have to rely on the same kinds of answers that the people of Israel received through the prophet Isaiah. This is where we have to come to the same place of submission that Job did when God answered him from the whirlwind. He's God and we're not. We don't understand. We don't know all that he knows. Our minds cannot grasp the greatness of God. We can just get a glimpse of it, what the word shows us. We can't grasp the total understanding that he has from the beginning to the end, his perfect plan. He sees the big picture, and we don't. We just don't. God wants the knowledge and the faith that he's not asleep to be enough for us. He wants the knowledge and the faith to believe that he is at work to be enough for us to be enough for us to trust him with everything that troubles us. Amen? I'm going to pray now, and then we're going to see a, a video with a song that I think will help us think a little bit more about this. And uh, as the video plays, respond how the Lord would have you respond in prayer to him. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your love for us. We are grateful for the bigness of God. We are grateful, Heavenly Father, that you promised us that those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength, that you give strength to the weak, Lord, and we recognize that we are indeed a weak people. Father, we need you. 
We need you. We know, Heavenly Father, that we are completely unable to survive without your breath of life in us. So, Heavenly Father, we do submit ourselves to you now. And we pray, Father, that as we catch a glimpse of the bigness of God, that would indeed encourage us and strengthen us and help us to wait on the Lord and to renew our strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Who has won? 
Let's stand. Father, we thank you for this word that you have given Bill. Lord, help us to remember not to be so quick like the disciples who said, don't you care? Father, your word shows us that you do care.